Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. All right, I'm here with Dr. Jesse Fox from Stetson University, a psychological researcher extraordinaire. Well, psychology of religion, I guess, is more, more properly put. Jesse, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And it's a little bit like finding family that you, you didn't know you had. <laughs> oh, yeah. This podcast has been probably my – basically, I've made friends uh, yeah. in, in the long run. It's one of the hidden benefits of hosting is – it's basically like going on, you know, I've been on 150 speed dates with intellectuals. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. One thing we should mention just in case, you know, especially if people hear you elsewhere and they're like, man, I don't know if Jesse was uh, at 100% today. That's because you have a one-week-old child at home. That's right. <laughs> and you you booked this time slot, I don't know, a month or two ago. Yeah. You, you may not, may, was the kid, was he late? Oh, he's early. He's yeah, early. He's four oh. weeks early. 
Yeah. Okay. So you exactly. anticipated getting this done before the birth. A month, about a month out. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, you're a you're a champ. I mean, thank you for for gritting and bearing it. Th- thankfully, like the stuff we're talking about is stuff that you, I, I think, know like the back of your hand. So I'm not gonna. I'm not going to ask you to go too far out on a limb today. I, I don't sure, think. Yeah. But, hey, but no promises, man. You never know where this stuff goes. There's a well-known saying in our field, you know, we study ourselves. The topic of spiritual bypass, you know, is something that connects into so many different areas that we'll, we'll probably end up, you know, unveiling here in a bit. But in some ways, I've been preparing, preparing for this conversation most of my life. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah. Oh, well, this and other conversations. So I want to start zoomed out, yeah. basically setting up the stakes for why spiritual bypassing matters and ask you, why is it important, just from a psychological perspective, to be open to both positive and negative experiences in life? Yeah, we, we can't live life completely or fully if we don't embrace both of those. And, you know, I was really reflecting on this and, um, my son was born on Tuesday, falling days, Ash Wednesday. If you go, you know, to receive the ashes, the imposition of ashes on, on Wednesday, you're immediately struck by all of the readings and all of the practices that death is something that we cannot avoid in life. And the great juxtaposition of having a son beginning birth the day after then coming to encounter the finitude of our experience in the imposition of ashes is to me a complete picture, you know, of new life and yet death is a part of life. And that's part of the reason why we can't avoid the both and uh, as much as we would want to sometimes that just isn't the way things work in reality. And so Psychological dysfunction um, oftentimes comes out of that avoidance of embracing both of those. It's really in collecting those, holding both of those um, together, you really have an authentic spirituality. And that's really where the stakes are, is the degree to which we live an authentic life. Yeah, that's really well said. I have a couple thoughts, one on the theological angle and one on the psychological angle. Theologically, if we are living it within the Christian tradition, and in some sense we want to say that Jesus of Nazareth lived sort of the full human experience, that Jesus is the prototype for a fully human person. Not every Christian tradition phrases it that way, but pretty much a lot of Christians would agree on something like that. Well, he certainly experienced the full range. He didn't run from negative experiences, he let himself weep. He mourned publicly when he lost friends. He went away to the desert to pray and process both good and bad things. And so we might just say theologically, sort of Christologically, uh, however you want to put it, like, yeah, that's a full life. And I like what you said just about that is just the actual world. You know, if you want to live in the real world, you have good experiences and bad experiences. There's kind of no way around it. That's kind of one of those, you know, primary definitions of psychopathology is kind of the break from your encounter with reality. Mm. Right. And so that's the whole concept of schizophrenia is this kind of break with encounter reality as it is. Yeah. 
you know, when, you, when you're talking about Jesus's, you know, life pattern as the logos, you know, the word, the, the blueprint, in my terms, the cosmos, the universe, and in the particularity of the human of Jesus of Nazareth. It, it reminds me of this one Christmas. I know we're out of season here, but there's this Christmas carol from. Yeah, Jesse, you know, this, you have permission exclusively follows a liturgical calendar. So you're going to have okay. to keep all. No, I'm totally kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. Please tell, mention whatever Christmas carol at you, dead of summer. You're welcome yeah, to mention yeah. a Christmas carol. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, if you, if you go to the uh, festival of nine lessons and carols, if you, if you ever go to that event in, in the Advent season, the opening carol is uh, once in uh, Royal David City. And there's a line in that I love. It says, he is our childhood pattern. Hmm. You're exactly right. If you look at you know, the gospel tradition, it doesn't shy away at all from any of the tragedy, the absurdity, the great highs and joys, as well as the great depths and, and sorrows. It hides nothing of that. You never have this phrase in the Gospels where Jesus laughs at anything. There's references to him weeping and sorrow, but he has this incredible sense of humor. And you have to, you have to bet <laughs> that some of the things he said, you know, cause people to kind of laugh and see things from a humorous standpoint. And that's actually one of the signs of mental health, right? Is that you have a sense of humor. Anybody yeah. who's gone through depression and then finds that they can laugh again at a joke, you know, that's a sign of, of yeah. mental health, right? So yeah, absolutely. You see the full range of all of that. Also just makes me think of the avoidance of processing, working through, talking through, thinking through the traumatic event is precisely the mechanism by which you end up with your PTSD symptoms, yeah. right? And so that therapy basically says we are going to face the negative stuff, the scariest stuff. In fact, as the clinician, we're trained to look for what appears to be the absolute scariest, most distressing aspect and to gently help the client mm -hmm. press precisely there because yeah. that is where, you know, it's like pressing down on a, a knot in your muscle in a massage. That's exactly where the pain is coming from the biggest knot is causing the most pain and in fact the the disassociation which is the clinical term for what often happens in ptsd is that is breaking from your lived experience it's sort of checking out mentally from whatever the rest of your body is actually experiencing just to kind of wrap all that around to to reality so those are the stakes right that's why it matters whether or not we use spirituality, religious language, whatever, to, to bypass, to skip. But before I put that cart before the horse, let me give you a chance sure. to define spiritual bypassing, and we'll see how it connects to this idea of being open to both positive and negative experiences. Absolutely, yeah. And there's a few definitions out there. Um, one of the more common ones that you'll run into is using spirituality, whether or not those are beliefs, practices, or emotions, to avoid uncomfortable things. And again, those can be uncomfortable experiences. They can be uncomfortable memories, uh, like you we were talking about, Dan, with the concept of trauma. 
And trauma can be kind of, we can broadly define that as painful things that happen to you. So it's not necessarily just life-threatening events like we see in the diagnostic manuals terminology. So we call this big T, you know, things that threaten your, your physical well-being. But we could also say, you know, it's things that are uncomfortable and make us want to seek out a sense of relief and uh, from the discomfort. So that's one of the more common ones. You also hear Masters in his book, Spiritual Bypassing, Avoidance and Holy Drag, which I really like that kind of just real precise wow. phrasing, avoidance. And if you think of it as, you know, religious garb, you know, things that you put on yeah. to kind of cover over um, that basic uh, avoidance of difficult uh, things. I feel like that that could be its own series, blank in holy drag. Like, like <laughs> how, you know, how much of the current sort of sociopolitical cluster is like political right wing tribalism in holy drag? And we'll get into, I think, some of those layers, uh, particularly like with the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, we saw some of these things pop up. Um, oh, yeah. In, in different ways. But. Another one that I think is really helpful, uh, you know, it comes out of Ken Wilber's terminology, um, you know, and he says, uh, spirituality is about inclusion and transcendence. And so spiritual bypassing is about excluding and trying to transcend mm. experience. So excluding things out of your psychological awareness so that you get to the comfortable, fuzzy, warm feeling of, of spiritual transcendence. I like uh, Richard Rohr's rephrasing of that a bit. He says it's about including and then transcending rather than tra transcending and including. He puts a different emphasis on it. I think that's really helpful if we think about spirituality as inclusion. And like we talked about when we talked about the stakes involved here, the deepest and widest spirituality helps us to hold the full range of human experience. So if we, if we recognize that that inclusion, even of the negative, as the Franciscans would say, that is our spiritual development. It's when we try to exclude things um, that we actually prevent ourselves from transcending. So I find that that's really a helpful way of, of thinking about it as well. We took that um, language and we developed more of a theoretical definition of it for research purposes. One of the things that you know we saw is a real different way of just viewing spirituality from more of a trait perspective. It's just a way that you tend to approach this sort of topic. And so we put it into the language of privilege. So it's when you privilege spirituality over and above psychology for our purposes here. There's other ways that you could construct that, but because of my background in, in psychometrics and everything, this is how we defined it. And it's really about viewing spirituality as kind of a way in which you hierarchically arrange your world. You know, spirituality is a way to get to another place rather than right now. You know, so if there's psychological issues, those are really inferior to the spiritual issues going on. Let me see if I am getting this right with like a real world example. So I had a, a chip repair done on my windshield the other day and just chatted with this older gentleman who was doing the work, He's probably a baby boomer and really nice guy. He, he kind of brought up the Ukraine situation and the complexity of it came up. And he said, you know, that's why I repair rock chips and windshields and I don't run 
the military, you know, I guess all, all, all we can do is pray. And I thought, yeah, yeah you know, in that situation, I think he's kind of right. Like he could, you know, he can maybe send some money to the Red Cross or, or something like that. Maybe his vote will have some small effect on if he wants more hawkish or dovish leaders. But really, I can't do a ton about Ukraine. That felt like a healthy example of what I think you're calling spiritualizing, right? To privilege it over the real world. Now, if he had said, man, have you noticed all the homeless people in our neighborhood recently? And I said, yeah, you know, there's a shelter down the street that is taking donations. He's like, well, I don't know about all that. I, I think all, I think all I can do is pray. That would be a denial of his actual ability to have agency and to say, well, prayer would be more effective than donating supplies or support to the local homeless shelter. Am I getting that right? I, I think, yeah, if I would add to that, I would say in, a, in addition to seeing them hierarchically, they're also antagonistic. Okay, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so one works against the other. So if you pray, it by definition means that you don't do anything with donating money. Oh, because there could be someone who prays and donates, right? But you're exactly. saying the person who the person who prays instead of donating, that's yes. when it's what you're talking about, privileging the spiritual over everything else. That's right. Yeah. Okay. It's saying it's 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 more important than giving, you know, of your time or your resources, et cetera. Yeah. That just tends to be how it goes when we I, I find when we arrange our world in a hierarchical fashion. You know, the, the higher up tends to get the more attention. And not only that, when they're, they seem to come into conflict, you always go to the, to the ones that's higher up. Yeah. So are there like Bible verses or Christian phrases or theological concepts that people might recognize if they, they can't think of specific examples as we talk in the, in the abstract but like, oh, you'd recognize it if you heard this. Like, you know what I mean? Are there sort of popular phrases? One thing that I find is a really common one is when people are going through grieving. It's when people go through the whole grieving process and people want to be there for them. They want to take away the pain they're experiencing. And, you know, who wouldn't want to do that for, for someone else who's grieving? One of the things that that we're very clear about in my program is like, you're going to want to remove your client's distress. Even as the therapist, you're going to be tempted to do the thing that you're about to describe. And it's, you should not like, that's not what we're there for. We're not there for momentary alleviation of mental suffering. Like we have a long game in mind, but I even feel it with clients. I just want to reduce this person's suffering right now and, you know, have to fight that urge sometimes. It's this phrase that you'll hear come up, particularly, you know, in Christian context, you know, that they're in a better place. What that person is going through is the real negative side of grieving. You know, they're experiencing the loss, uh, the, the sense that that person who, you know, they may have gotten up every morning for the past 20 years and had a cup of coffee with before going to work, they're going to be drinking that cup of coffee alone now. That person slept next to them every night. They will be sleeping alone. They're, that's what they're experiencing. And so the grieving process includes all of that. You know, it includes 
that sense of remembrance, you know, of the things that that person gave to that other individual during their their life. And it's also accepting that for now that is going to be gone. And so it's it's in one way kind of upplaying the sense of look it forward to the future while downplaying what's really happening in the present for that person. That's a really common one I hear. Yeah, you know, is that well that person's in a better place or you know, we don't grieve without hope. There are these, you know, phrases that people can kind of turn to in a way that are overly simplified in their application. What I like to conceptualize this at is is a simplicity on the near side of complexity, if that helps. You know, never trust a, a simplicity on the near side of complexity, but a simplicity on the far side of complexity is one you can trust, right? And so a person who really knows what it's like to grieve, they're on the far side of complexity. Does that make sense? And if they have some more pithy or sort of more summarized sort of thoughts, you can, you can trust those more than a person who has a quick phrase that has not gone through the mourning process themselves. You know, it, this is maybe our first little rabbit trail here because what I'm kind of realizing as we talk about this is that the language itself is not the whole picture, right? As you're saying, so you might have a simple phrase. It might even be the same phrase, all manner of things shall be well, which Julian of Norwich, she came up with that. She, she coined that phrase after seeing, you know, a quarter or in the middle of a, a third or a quarter of Europe dying needlessly from this rat shit plague. Mm-hmm. But somebody could quote that having not ever mourned anything and the exact same words. And, and in a sense, that's the way that wisdom traditions work is that you end up with phrases and sort of condensed wisdom that then has to be applied with prudence, with sort of judgment and discernment. They, it can, I don't know, maybe it's just like a larger point about the, the way that we interact with language and even truthful language is that almost like none of it is ever really atomized unless it becomes so specific as to be meaningless or unhelpful, right? And all the poetry is taken out of it. But if the poetry is still in there, then you're going to have to use discernment about when it applies. You know, you can say something that's very theologically accurate on the surface, you know, and so, okay, you, you may be taking that phrase from Jesus himself as a very you know, appropriate sense of hope for the future. But in again, in the context of what, you know, Jesus was saying, he was saying that while he was being tortured to death and, and while the man uh, to his right was also being tortured to death. And so we can't lose that, right? We can't lose that context. And, and it is in some ways, if you think about spiritual bypass, as taking something out of context and misapplying it, I think is a helpful way to put it. So there are sort of, verses or phrases or theological concepts that are often used to spiritually bypass. But then there's also stuff within the tradition that pushes back on that. You mentioned Lent, Ash Wednesday, I would add Good Friday in there as well. And all the theological 
um, work that's been done over the years about how essentially we are living during Holy Saturday, the time between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that that's essentially where we live. I'm also thinking of the concept of lament. I wrote a little paper in, in class about spiritual bypass, and I brought in some Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar. What he thinks is going on that like basically the lament Psalms, there is, I guess, pretty strong evidence that they were a part of the regular liturgical practice of the Israelites. And so they are regularly practicing lament, sadness, and then they do come to joy and some sort of assurance that Yahweh is with us, but they walk through that pain. And of course they do, because look what they've been through, right? And even if you don't think that, <laughs> as I am actually don't think that the Exodus is a historical event, but the fact that the, that, that group of people identified themselves through stories like that. That is all that matters for our purposes from a psychological perspective, whether or not they happened. The fact that their self-identity is like, we have suffered and yet God is with us. We are a, a small, embattled people group, nation state. And like that basically inoculates you against spiritual bypass. If you are in a community like that, some Christian communities do that. More liturgical calendar-based ones are more likely to do it, but a lot don't. Uh, exactly right. You know, it's inbuilt into the tradition. You know, you don't have to look far uh, at all to, to find pedagogical tools that really disabuse you of spiritual bypass as the essence of spirituality. And, and so those, those early Christians had to uh, spiritually figure out a way to continue to develop when one of the primary, literally, suffering was the pedagogy of, of spiritual development. And I'm talking about physical, right? Physical suffering. And that's where we really start to see the cross become a, a symbol of central importance within the Christian tradition. Why do you think the cross becomes central from a psychological perspective once it's no longer physically dangerous? Basically, once a cross is not in your future anymore, why, like, yeah. is that, just just kind of make that a little bit clearer. Yeah, it has to do um, with the trials of development. The physical symbol of the crucifixion and then the crucifixes that come out of that as, you know, a portal in which you then have a view of how things actually work, Right. The early Christians didn't embrace that because part of it was the scandal of it, but later it became a pedagogical tool. You know, it became a way to teach about picking up our own crosses. Mm -hmm. As Jesus himself said, you have to pick up your own cross. And so the cross became a symbol, not just of physical death and finitude, but it also became a symbol of how we develop spiritually. It's not like it wasn't in there. Like sometimes people get these timelines confused, and I think I do too. The early church, sure, they didn't all have the gospel accounts right away, but they had all four of them for 250 years before Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. So for about as long as America has been a nation— they did have the Gospels, and the Gospels do have, as you're saying, pick up your cross and follow me. It's not like 
it wasn't invented out of whole cloth by Constantine. Right. But it just didn't like if we look at sort of the popular art and imagery of Christians during those multiple centuries, they're not focusing on the cross. And what you're saying is, yeah, because they could be killed like Jesus right. in their actual lives. And so they're focusing on, you know, the sign of the fish, the ichthus, or the communion table, right? The the chalice and, you know, the Lord's Supper and the, the Last Supper, right? So, okay, that I'm understanding you, right? Yes. Yeah, yes, exactly. And And so, you know, to skip forward, you know, a few hundred years of history, when you get the first Christian monasteries developing in the Egyptian desert and everything, that's where you start to see these pastoral care models start to you know, really pop up around sustaining, healing, reconciling, and guiding. All of those start to pop up within you know, a few hundred years of Christianity being legalized. And so you have these spiritual models in which develop and are used as pedagogical strategies to be able to develop spiritually. None of them shy away from suffering. Right. Yeah, that's the sustaining part, right? Is is that there's a recognition from the beginning and the language is within the tradition already of bearing your cross. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, we're gonna <laughs> we're just gonna have to cul-de-sac some of this so that we can yeah. make sure to, to talk about spiritual bypass, but that is so interesting and I love it. Let's take a break and when we come back. Uh, I'm going to ask you whether or not this the spiritual bypass sort of idea is basically just the critique that Marx and Freud have made of Christianity. So we'll be right back. This most recent patron exclusive episode is in my mind about as good as it gets. I had Brad Strawn from Fuller Seminary back on to talk more about existentialism, how that relates to therapy uh, and some really prominent theorists around that and how just we think about existentialism, death, meaning, freedom, isolation, the limits of uh, our connection to other people, our aloneness before God and before our own death. Uh, we got into some really cool stuff together. Brad's episode, which is uh, his original episode, is called Integrating Psychology and Theology um, and Christian Existentialism, is the third highest downloaded episode in You Have Permission history. So I imagine you guys have heard it. It's one of the most popular episodes. And uh, I just love the chance to have him back. Really enjoyed that conversation. I wanted to play a clip from it so you can get a sense of, of that chat. Um, but to become a patron and hear the whole episode, go to patreon.com slash Dan Koch. That link is in the show notes. Here's a clip from my conversation uh, with Brad. And after that, we'll just go right back into the episode with Jesse. And I think in our first conversation, Dan, we both talked a bit about how we had come to psychology. And I think another way to narrate that for me is that religion surprisingly was was fairly intellectual again it was yeah. you know it was giving intellectual assent to propositional beliefs <laughs> and you know it was back in the days of apologetics and uh, the proof of god you know became important for a while there 
And so that influenced how people did evangelism. And then, you know, many of us got really turned off by that. And, you know, people in real, who were living life, who hadn't grown up in the church were very unconvinced by these arguments. But, but I think what we're recognizing more and more now is that how people live their life, right? Or what younger people say, you know, I like Jesus and I don't like your religion. Those kind of things bring us back again to a very embodied psychology and theology and philosophy. And I think existentialism is essentially, well, is rooted in the body. You know, I think that what you and I are going to do is we're actually going to, we're going to use Christian thought to sort of engage with these four. And I personally find myself having had to embrace them and face them. But I, I actually I do take the point, I think it's true, that for some people, they do use religion to avoid these questions, or they're given very simple answers to them, and then they don't have to go there in their lived experience moment by moment. Sounds like you are in agreement about that. Exactly. I think, maybe even to back up a little bit, I think you could have several responses to the existential dread of death and isolation and freedom and meaning. And one is to say, well, it all just doesn't matter at all, right? And so do whatever you want, as long as you want. Um, And you can go into nihilism or hedonism, one of the two. Um, Or you could go into a very structured, controlled world where you find a system that, that gives you all the meaning and gives you, you know, that security oriented kind of way of being. Um, and and sometimes religion is used for that. There's other things um, that I think people can use for that as well. I think you could argue that a, even a secular humanism, um, which could be a form of religiosity, could be used. So yep. it, it, I think it comes back then to um, when we talk about a Christian existentialism, I think we're going to have to be clear about what we mean by that that it's a certain way of engaging with your faith that allows you to stay open to these realities. I think Yalem is naming realities, but his answer and some of the others for what to do with that are are perhaps going to be different than we might suggest. So, Jesse, one of the titles of your articles includes this phrase, the opiate of the masses, which is the famous critique of Karl Marx that religion is basically just a way for people to sort of deal with the suffering of this world. It's sort of a mental drug that they take to dull their senses to the pain of life. And Freud had a sort of adjacent critique, right? That it's basically daddy wish fulfillment. We project onto God what we think of our father or maybe some better version that we wish we had gotten than our actual father or whatever. But in both cases, it it is reducible to psychological self-deception towards something that we wish was better than it was. And I can see why you use this phrase because, well, there's some kindred spirit between that and what you're talking about, right? Absolutely. The phrase spiritual bypassing was actually coined by a Buddhist psychotherapist by the name of John mm-hmm. Wellwood. Very interested in spirituality. You kind of got main, you know, the mainstream psychological training of the time and came to a recognition that mainstream psychological training just really did not encapsulate 
the full human experience. Uh, personality psychologist, I do a lot of close work with, uh, Ralph Piedmont has a great phrase for that. He says, we've really only studied psychologically what it means to be human from the bottom down uh, in terms of coping and survival. But we've only begun to break into what it means to be human from the top up in terms of transcendence. And so John Wellwood, he came to the phrase spiritual bypassing actually through the practical work he was doing in his Dharma community. And he noticed that people who are learning how to embrace a Buddhist path utilize things like meditation. And I even I know it sounds kind of crazy to say even mindfulness as a way of avoiding certain things. And he noticed that it really held them back, too, from being able to actually embrace the full practice. Because as you know, mindfulness is one path of the Eightfold Path. The other paths, you know, are part of ethical right action, right thinking, et cetera. And so uh, he, he noticed that and came up with that phrase, spiritual bypassing. He noticed they were using the tools of, of Buddhist practice to actually avoid really dealing with what Buddhist practice is intended to help you deal with, right? Just so I understand, my mind for mindfulness, I recognize that it's the same word in the Buddhist tradition as it is in psychological work of becoming this sort of broad umbrella term for becoming aware of your thoughts, your experiences, your emotions, your whatever, your energy levels, your arousal levels, your anger. But what he was saying is like people were kind of going halfway with their mindfulness just enough, sort of using it as a hack rather than using it and going all the way with it. Because if you're really doing mindfulness, you you should be actually really embracing uh, and really acknowledging those negative emotions. That's kind of the whole the whole game, but sort of using like a yeah, I guess like a like a half-assed version of it or or using it to sort of short circuit that process. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly what he noticed. And that's why it seems so counterintuitive to say it that way. Because I could see a lot of Christian prayer practices as being more open to spiritual bypass, right? Like, well, we're not going to use the imprecatory Psalms or the lament Psalms. We're just going to ask God for things we want. And so when I'm feeling sad, I will just pray for joy. Yeah. Like you're, you're praying and, and you're doing kind of a normal Christian prayer and ignoring this other part of you. But mindfulness, see, it's, it's almost like poetic that that would be the guy who would coin the term because mindfulness is supposed to keep that from happening through like radical acceptance, you know, accepting everything about this moment and not trying to change it. That's like the whole idea. That's why it sort of works better. That's why a lot of times what a Christian needs is to bring in Christian meditation practices, which have more close kinship with Buddhist mindfulness than they do petitionary prayer, right? Or something like that. When you you experience some of these states that can happen in in meditation, they do bring about a sense of bliss. Oh yeah. A sense of, you know, things are as they are and and that's all that needs to be. That's what John Wellwood was talking about. Yeah. Wow. It's like wanting to go straight to that feeling of peaceful non-attachment, but maybe also like a nice 
dump of serotonin, you know, making you feel like everything is good. I mean, I, I certainly have, I have had and continue to have that type of experience in my own contemplative practice. And there is a temptation to chase that like I'm chasing the high from a drug. You know, it's not as easy to get as just taking a drug, which is why there are a lot more people who abuse drugs than abuse meditation. Uh, but you can imagine, I mean, I can imagine someone just going, ooh, that is the best feeling ever. Like, I just want to keep having that feeling. There's a lot of connections here to, you know, Christian contemplative practices as well, like you were saying, you know, that uh, this is why it's really helpful, you know, to to really embrace a big view of this tradition, because there's so many helpful guides within this tradition. When you go through this process, it's very easy to come to that point, like I was saying, where you think you've arrived. But I think I'm saying this right. Chungyam Chungpei wrote a book uh, about this very issue. And he has this great phrase uh, that I love pulling up every once in a while to remind me that I haven't arrived. He says, enlightenment is ego's ultimate disappointment. Wow. <laughs> so so when you feel that sense of I've accomplished this, it's like you, you're not there yet, right? right. Um, but, you know, within the Christian tradition, the whole idea of the dark nights, you know, of, of sense and spirit, and some even said, you know, that there's a dark night of self, too, really quickly, you know, makes you realize, um, you know, if if I think I've arrived and I've claimed it and I'm and I'm really attached to these spiritual highs, I need to be very aware of how addictive that is. Right. And and it's so easy to get reattached to that. I'm doing this for the high, the bliss, the sense of I've just spiritually arrived, right? If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. Do you think that there is a version of that with what we might call pharisaical type behaviors or legalism? Like, would you would you want to describe it psychologically, even neurochemically in the same way that a person who gets a kind of high from judging other people around them, lifting themselves up as a paragon of holiness or would you would you conceive of that differently? You know, that's one of the things that we've discovered in, in qualitative research that we've done is that there's a spiritual narcissism to this as well. Just that sense of, you know, I've arrived at these kind of developed states, any sort of developmental language you know, has to be balanced uh, from an outside perspective for this reason. Because we we have this, it seems to be just this inbuilt tendency to want to claim any sort of achievement as our own. I don't know if that's a you know a function of our context here in, in Western society where we're highly hyper individualistic hmm. around these matters, but there is a 
you know, that, that phrase from uh, Masters, you know, avoidance in holy garb, I think he said that for a reason, you know, that people who are in high spiritual authority positions have to be very aware of the tendency of their own ego to do this type of bypassing. To recognize something like that is the ultimate inoculation to like what I often think of as like Los Angeles gurus. You yeah. know, there always are yeah. these, they always end up in LA, I think because there's a lot of celebrities and money there and therefore sort of power that they can associate with these powerful people. You just never have a shortage of them in the LA area uh, where you grew up, right? LA area. That's right. That's right. Right. So in response to Freud and Marx, who say, this is wish fulfillment, this is projection, this is a drug that people take. Your answer is, yes, sometimes. That's right. <laughs> but, but to call it only that is to actually re- like take this massive world of the spiritual, of the religious, of the various um, stages along that journey that people seem to take, and the and the vast, uh, you know, in William James's language, the varieties of religious experience, and and to say that that is all of it is is naively reductionistic, right? I think it is. I I don't think it's even really engaging with the uh, sources themselves. It's not even really engaging, like with the people I talked about, like Saint John of the Cross and others who right. um, quickly disabuse people of this notion that somehow you've reached it. But one thing I want to just make sure to address, because it comes up sometimes on the show, and I know that you're well positioned to to briefly respond to it. There is a sense, especially among people who have been hurt by religion, and, and my research is constantly looking at those stories, that religion and spirituality, maybe they're not good for people. Mm-hmm. And my understanding of the state of the research is that is you you just it's just not supported to say mm-hmm. that and and one of the the meta studies the the meta analyses that you mention in one of your articles is this is this Koenig article from 2011 where he looked at 3000 quantitative studies that involved religion and or spirituality in case people are sort of wondering what is the broad thrust of the research on this stuff can you give us a few bullet points there? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's hard to encapsulate in really brief terms because there is so much of it. Yeah. What we've really seen in the last 20 years is just an upswell of empirical research around religious factors, spiritual factors, um, and how those relate to psychological health, physiological health, et cetera. And so what we mean when we say that, when we say religion, spirituality, and its relationship to health, we're talking about three levels of analysis. We're talking about demographic information, so whether or not people call themselves religious or not, et cetera. We're talking about cultural, so if there are practices like prayer that people Mm -hmm. um, utilize. And then we're talking more uh, on a personality or or what we call an organismic level, you know, it's inbuilt into your psychology. Those three levels have found over the past 20 years to show that overall, yes, there is a positive relationship between those factors and lots of different dimensions of health, psychological as well as physiological. Now, there are studies, though, that do show that there are negatives, there are negative relationships. Yeah. 
Some of these are studies, both in terms of their positive aspects as well as their negative aspects, have shown longitudinally over time, they continue to have effects. Now, for folks who may be coming from the lens of these probably just are outdated things that are really epiphenomenal of evolution over time, and we need to just abandon them or whatever. Those are a minority of the studies, but they are there. And they are picking up on dynamics that have also become more a part of the psychological lexicon in terms of religious and spiritual struggles and crises that people have. Those are very powerful. So when people experience that, they're more likely to experience suicidal ideations, they're more likely to not recover from disease, they're more likely to experience a whole range of problems. Very, very powerful. So for people who do have that perspective, I agree with them, (laughs) right? Yeah, it's sort of like, it's kind of like religion and spirituality pretty much work for pretty much everyone to some degree, except when you're harmed by it, oh boy. And it can hurt so badly, it can sometimes skew the whole study to have enough of those people. But also from your personal perspective, you maybe can't imagine that it is good for people if it was capable of producing that much harm in your experience or a friend's experience, a loved one's experience. I sometimes feel that way when I'm reading the accounts of survival survivors of spiritual abuse or clergy so, sex abuse, stuff like that. That's why I think that, you know, in the work that you're doing connects into this work as well, yeah. because I think ultimately what you will probably find is that people who have experienced abuse, when they talk about their abuser, will likely also bring up that they use spiritual bypass as a way to justify what they were doing. That the abuser did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That is a good connection. Yep. And I've heard people share stories like that. <laughs> I, I definitely think there there is an intimate connection there. Again, because it's 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 this way of just kind of hierarchically arranging your universe as a way of kind of justifying avoiding, you know, these issues. The metaphor that I like to use, and I I'm just not I'm not I'm not gonna pass up this opportunity to get your take on it, and you can correct me if you think it needs correction, is that religion and spirituality, but especially religion, I think, because of its more structured format, is like nuclear fission. Like it's like a nuclear power plant. And if you have the right stuff in place, it produces essentially free energy or the lowest cost, lowest environmental impact energy source that we have. And when those safeguards break down or some cataclysm happens that was unforeseen or whatever, then you get nuclear fallout and it destroys everything in a 20 mile radius for a thousand years. And so that's how I, that's why it's so powerful, why the destruction is, can be so devastating. It's also why most people in the orbit experience positive effects most of the time, because those things don't happen every day. We don't have nuclear fallout every day, but we do get it. And uh, we need to get much, much better at predicting it so that we can harness those benefits. You know, in my perspective, allow people to connect with God, to experience God's love, which I think is real, without the threat of fallout, essentially. Yeah, that's a really apt uh, metaphor. You know, the person I'm thinking of is James Griffith, who wrote uh, Religion That Heals, Religion That Harms. 
And one of the things that makes religion very unique, just in terms of human psychology, is that it has this capacity to unite most of our psychological functioning into a cohesive framework. And so it's our kinship network, it's our empathy for the outsider, all of these different psychological networks, like you were saying, fuse together very powerfully. When that can be a force for good, it's amazing that there's a part of human experience that transcends what's happening. And our capacity to be able to look at our time and place from a transcendent perspective is something that's very unique to the human species. We don't see this fully replicated in animal models. And it's that capacity to see out onto the horizon of our life, our mortality, and then our response to that in terms of seeing what happens beyond that right. is unique to us. That produces an anxiety that is unique to humans. Other animals don't need to spiritually bypass because there's nothing for them to bypass. I mean, maybe okay. we don't know about maybe cephalopods and some of the higher primates or, you know, maybe there's some version of that. It's, it's a ramp, not a direct cutoff, but like right. generally speaking, rodents don't have to quell that anxiety. And so it's a unique human problem. And I'm connecting it to the Buddhism research. Like, I don't think I understood this before this morning, Jesse, that the sort of impetus for wanting to spiritually bypass in the first place is that spirituality fucking works. And so because it works, we then as humans, as we are anxious about various things, the future, our own death, bad things happening to our family or our children, whatever, or our friends, we want to reduce people's suffering. We have empathy for each other. Then we go, look, I found this pearl of great price and let's just get the best thing out of this as quickly as possible. When I first started contemplative practice, I would use it as a cure-all for my friends. I would ask all my friends who had spiritual struggles, have you tried meditating yet? Have you tried centering prayer? And I think that to some degree, I was spiritually bypassing. I was trying to get them out of a difficult situation with a thing that I knew had worked for me, by the way, only quite recently. I think that's part of it, right? That I didn't have years and years of experience with it. You know, if you think of our psychology in this sense of being able to take a step back, be able to see your life in the greater context of time and place, that involves a time orientation. You know, So you look at your day and you think, okay, what am I going to do at the end of work? Okay, I'm going to go home. That's an event horizon. You know, I'm going to go home and then I'm going to eat because I'll be hungry. Um, and then after that, you know, I'll probably spend some time with my family. And then after that, you know, I'll probably have to think about the next day. Um, so there's all these event horizons, you know, that we as human beings have the capacity to mentalize. Now, what's unique about spirituality is that it's that event horizon of mortality that goes beyond what we can see in our limited time timeline. Let's put it that way. That's the thing I'm most afraid of is non-existence. Well, that's the thing that we're all probably most afraid of. <laughs> yeah. I, some people seem to not be, but I am terrified by it. Yeah. One thing that I think can be a misconception about this idea about spiritual transcendence, 
again, is that there's no crisis involved. And, and this is the issue, is that you run into this all the time with the psychology of hope. Um, I find, you know, as the psychology of hope is roughly stated in the sense of there's a goal that you're trying to achieve. You have a pathway to get to that goal. And then you have personal agency in order to walk that path towards your goal, oh. right? So you have the skills to be able to get there. This all really breaks down when you think about spirituality. Because spirituality is not built on a hope that you see in your lifetime. <laughs> right. It's something that goes, literally, you have to die first. <laughs> I, I hate to put it in that stark of terms, but that's where spiritual hope really comes from. It's not about achieving something. It, it is about moving beyond what your limited perspective can hold. And that does require a death. Yeah, I think this is it. This is why spiritual bypass is so fundamental, because I think people can look at spirituality and say, and accurately pinpoint moments in which people really just hold on to the positive, you know, that really is yeah, just like, you know, why are you afraid about death? It's like after after you die, you know, you're going to be in paradise. And anybody, you know, who really runs to that, I think, uh, so fast without really dealing with, like we would put in our terms, you know, the Good Friday experience. We, we all will have that Good Friday experience, right? In large again and in small ways. That's a simplicity that hasn't dealt with complexity. Yeah. You know, and I don't want to write people off completely, but I'm always suspect, you know, if I practice a good hermeneutic of suspicion, just like Marx and Ford and others, that there's something that I don't think quite it has been dealt with there. Now, th that doesn't say, you know, people don't have courage in that context. It's in the face of non-being, not in the face of non-being, not being a reality. I mean, I find more and more respect for people who take that head on than those who want to get around it. In fact, somebody who it seems to me is just getting around the fundamental anxieties of the human experience I pretty much immediately write them off as soon as I think that that's what's going on because I don't think that they can speak to me. And I think that they're kidding themselves for, for one reason or another. Now, as an individual, I might not judge that person. As a teacher, I might say, hey, you probably shouldn't be teaching. You know, you shouldn't try to be a thought leader or whatever. Yeah. yeah, And, you know, that's why to bring up the Gospels again, I, I think that's probably part of the reason why, you know, the writer talked about the Gethsemane prayer experience and these really stark explicit terms about love that you scene. know weeping yep. blood and and and, yep. and, 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 and sweating i mean the agony that a person goes through and yep. and again this is our time orientation right in you know the gospels jesus is looking forward to the horizon of his mortality and his willingness to step into that experience fully is a thing that gives me courage to step into that experience fully. Yeah. I don't think he was looking, you know, at the resurrection and saying, well, it's all going to turn out well in the end. I think he really accepted the finality of his own death. There are different sort of theological positions there, but I am more drawn, I think, especially as I become more psychologically trained and, and just kind of think through those lenses more naturally as a result of that training I am drawn to ways of thinking of Jesus as fully human, where Jesus does not know sort of the outcome of this. Jesus, what Jesus knows is this is what I'm supposed to do right now. And I'm, and he feels confident that this is what God wants of him. 
but that basically to say, like, why would Jesus be sweating blood and say, please pass this cup from me? If he knew he was just going to like suffer for like maybe three days, probably less, you know, like, like why would Jesus be afraid of descending briefly into hell to fucking conquer Satan? Like that's not a soldier who knows he will come out of a war intact, victorious. That soldier's not worried about going to battle. I don't even think it makes sense with the text that Jesus would be sort of triumphalistic beforehand. And that is exactly what spiritual bypassing tries to do is to replace Gethsemane with, I don't know, Easter Sunday or something like that. It's Mm -hmm. yeah, it's premature transcendence. It's trying to get to Easter Sunday without going through good Friday. Yeah. Well, I have one more question for you before we wrap up or just like one more topic to hit, which is that, you've sort of hinted at this, that spiritual bypass might be sort of an understandable and natural stage in a faith journey progression that it's the kind of thing. And maybe let me, let me tie it to what I said earlier. And you tell me if that's right. It's where you realize the power of your faith and you get stoked about that power and your natural impulse, as it was mine with some friends, is to apply that sort of to everything and to to get that power out of it sort of without having to go through more natural steps. It, it's, it's from a joyous realization of the power of it that you then want to over apply it and sort of maybe I can skip suffering with this new tool that works so well. Is that how you conceive of it as maybe one step along the journey? I, th- I think it's helpful, at least I have found it to be helpful to think of the metaphor of developing a relationship with an intimate partner. You know, when, when you first meet that person, they seem to have all the qualities that make you feel complete. You know, you want to spend every waking moment with them. And, you know, they seem brighter because you're in their presence, right? And, you know, this is oftentimes the reason why people invest in a long-term relationship. Yeah, and they say, yeah, I never want to spend a day without this person. And so they make a long-term commitment. Pretty quickly after that, they realize the qualities that they thought the other person had incomplete were partly their own projections of perfection. You know, that this person completed them, but they actually didn't complete them. (laughs) The things that they thought even were the things that they wanted to keep them around have now started to grate on their nerves. You know, it's like, say they have a great sense of humor, you know, and and they just make you laugh all the time. Well, after a couple of years, the complaint becomes they can't take anything seriously. (laughs) Right. So the projection onto that person is not really that person. It's it's what I think that other person should be in order to complete me hmm. is a projection. And so, you know, that's why it's common for people after making a long-term commitment within the first couple of years, go, go to couples counseling. You know, it's mm-hmm. one of the most common times for people to say, we're, we're in trouble, right? And it takes a couple of years for the patients to wear down 
of kind of covering up those areas that you thought weren't there are really there and vice versa, right? And so what happens then is people experience a trough in their relationship. And this is a lot like what it, it it's like to invest in a long-term relationship with God. When you first experience the encounter, you know, with, in psychological terms, the numinous, it changes your world. But he called this the master motive. You know, when you experience this, it's so powerful that everything else kind of comes into alignment around this spiritual experience. Yeah. And then eventually you get to the point where the prayers just aren't quite satisfying in the way they used to, you know, it's like, and then eventually you say, well, God, why didn't you do this thing that I wanted you to do for me? You know, God must not be all powerful or God must not be all loving. And so eventually you realize maybe God isn't what I thought God was, was when I first met God. Yeah. <laughs> and you experience a trough in your relationship with God. It's at that point where people either go back and they try to conserve these practices and they double down on them and they try to approach them in the same way that they did with, you know, their kind of enlightenment moment that they had. A hundred percent. Yes. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yes. And so, so they double down. So it's like, you know, um, try petitionary prayer more and more and more. Try the ax model of prayer. <laughs> yeah. That's try, right. Yes. Try some slight variations, some, some other evangelical approved author who's going to repackage the same stuff with 5% different, you know? <laughs> yeah. So you know, double down on it. So at that point, people try to conserve or they just say, okay, I'm done with this. And they walk away. Hmm. The third option, you know, for people is that they transform how they understand the sacred in their lives. And this is where people oftentimes I find, I don't know if you find this to be the case, is that they say God is way more mysterious than I thought God was Yeah. when all of this started out. Eventually, people do experience this, I think, invariably. Again, if they really pursue it, yeah. if they really pursue it, they reach this dry point. And that's a really crucial moment for growth. Sometimes people bypass it, try to, you know, they try to go, I'm going to leap over this necessary experience of, kind of my projections dissolving and I'm going to try to just jump over that as much as I can, or, you know, they get a good guide, you know, other people who have gone through this yeah. and say, you know, I'm maybe one step ahead on the journey, but even that breaks down eventually. <laughs> um, you know, and so this is how, you know, you can still continue on. And at the same time, let go of maybe some of those, those things that you used to cling to for certainty. I want to connect this to my personal favorite episode of this show, which, you know, you're not supposed to have a favorite, but I do. And it's episode 123 with Heather Griffin. And I recommend it to people all the time. It's, it's called Bible Facts, uh, Sincerity Culture and Evangelical Instatrust or Sanctified, Sanctified Common Sense and Evangelical Instatrust. And we talk about sincerity culture. These are all her terms her basic claim, which I find very plausible, is that what has happened in a lot of white evangelical spaces is a kind of arrested development for a number of reasons. There's anti-intellectualism, there's suspicion of 
sort of outsiders and elite institutions, there is uh, a belief there's there's really kind of a white male privilege. If we're just sincere, then we're kind of God's men, um, and that's all that's required. And it and it all leads to this sort of larger immaturity in the subculture. Uh, very few people who who have really gone through the fire, and if it seems like they have, and they have this wisdom that contradicts the sort of common sense of these white male leaders who haven't, maybe it's discounted. So I guess I just want to connect that for listeners who who maybe have heard that episode. Jesse, I'm not expecting you to have internalized all of that exactly, but could this be one of the mechanisms where a person in a spiritually immature or arrested development community, would this be the kind of thing that would naturally become very popular? That spiritual bypassing would be a way of sort of like managing the fact that all of us are not really making much progress here. We maybe can't admit that to ourselves, but we'll just keep using these phrases that sort of remind us of our in-group status. They keep us from the most immediate pain and they'll also keep us from growing. It's sort of like a, I wonder if it's a mechanism to be combined with other analysis of why those groups often stay so spiritually immature. Yeah, that's it's a interesting analysis. It, it, I uh, come out of that world from personal experience, having you know uh, grown up within kind of like the heyday of the evangelical right movement. Yeah. So I know what what they're talking about from personal experience. There is a tendency, I think, in Again, this seems to be a very human thing. So I don't want to just point out that this is just this subculture, you know, that that yeah. this can happen to. It can definitely be a symptom of what's going on. And so we always have to, I think, be really careful, particularly with this topic, because it can be very charged, you know. And so we we're not just talking about one way that people cope. For some people, this is the very structure of reality. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about the very essence of how they see the world, right? Because it isn't it isn't just a coping mechanism if it is the furthest you've gotten on your journey, right? If it is, it's like a thirteen year old can understand what a thirteen year old can understand. They're they they're not just coping. You know, they, they're just doing what 13-year-olds are able to do, and later they'll be able to do more. And they'll look back and go, oh, that was a funny way I dealt with that at 13. But until they get beyond 13, right, it isn't, it isn't merely a coping mechanism. It is a worldview. It is a, it is a lens through which you see everything. That's it. Yeah. And it's not that we just don't have different perspectives. It's that we see the ultimate in almost universally different terms. Well, Jesse, what an incredible conversation. It, we could have gone another hour. I'm glad to have met you, put it that way. And I hope that Likewise. we will have more uh, excuses to talk. And yeah, so where where should people go if they want to engage with your work? Uh, I'm very simple when it comes to <laughs> uh, like social media and that sort of thing. I don't have a public uh, social media account. Bless you. 
I just have a faculty page. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> so yeah, so they can find um, uh, stuff in my bio there. Um, I'm, I want to give a shout out to Craig Cashwell, uh, who I'm working on a book with on this topic about uh, spiritual bypass. And uh, he's just been a real great trailblazer for this conversation. We did a lot of foundation laying for what we're talking about here. And so he and I are working on that right now. Hope to be done with that this next year. But yeah, you can find find out more on my uh, faculty page. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jesse. I just loved it, as everybody can obviously tell. Likewise. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how.